On Sunday, January 27, 2007, a fisherman set out off the coast of Japan near Tokyo to start his day. On his route, he made his way through the Awashima Marine Sanctuary. Lurking just below the surface, the fisherman spotted something unusual. It didn't resemble anything he'd ever encountered before, but was more akin to the tales that he may have heard from other fishermen. Swimming in the shallows of the sanctuary was a five-foot eel-like creature with wide-open gills and a mouth agape lined with 25 rows of trident-shaped teeth. The fisherman contacted the staff of the marine sanctuary and directed them to the creature. The staff members couldn't believe the sight in front of them. The animal was identified as an ancient, rarely seen creature, the frilled shark. The frilled shark is a living fossil that spends its days deep under the waves, anywhere from 160 to 660 feet to be precise. They are named for the six distinct frilled gills that line the side of their body. This shark has a very eel-like appearance with two elongated caudal fins running along the last top and bottom third of its body. Staying unchanged for 80 million years, this fish was rarely ever seen by humankind and was believed to be extinct. It wasn't until it resurfaced that day in 2007 that we were made aware that the species still thrived. The ocean is a large mystery to us. Many creatures lay hidden far beneath its surface past where even light doesn't venture. We are only now just starting to scratch the surface of this alien ecosystem. On many occasions, the depths instead choose to meet us. This is exactly what happened off the east coast of South Africa in 1938. Welcome to Mythozoology. Jay Connors, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Mythozoology, where we dive into the legends, myths, and misunderstandings that surround the animals that inhabit our world. Today's episode is going to be a little different from my normal episodes. Why? Well, because it's my show and I do what I want. But really, the animal I'm talking about today is not really all that misunderstood. It does, however, have a very interesting history and has deep-rooted links to one distinct field of study that we may all know, but just not by name, cryptozoology. Now sit back and relax, or keep doing whatever it is you're doing. I'm not your boss. Because today, I'm going to be talking about the coelacanth. The coelacanth is a fish that has remained relatively unchanged as a species for 400 million years. For that, it is known as a living fossil, much like the frilled shark. Coelacanth can reach up to six and a half feet long and weigh upwards of 200 pounds. You can divide them into two species that make their home off the east coast of Africa in the Indian Ocean and off the east coast of Indonesia. Their preferred habitat is a level of ocean known as the Twilight Zone, which lays 500 to 800 feet below the surface. At this level, 
they can only be found on rocky slopes in caves off the shores of volcanic islands. Coelacanths are carnivores that consume primarily cephalopods. This would include cuttlefish, squid, and octopus. They are known as passive drift feeders, moving slowly through their habitat, only making swift movements when actively hunting their prey. This animal has a very ancient look to it. Their body is covered in thick cosmoid scales that act as armor to protect them. The secondary tail extends past their primary tail and effectively divides the creature's top and bottom halves. Many aspects of the animal's appearance point to its status as ancient, but the most distinct characteristic of the coelacanth are its lobed fins. Unlike the more common ray-finned fish that we see abundant in our ocean today, the coelacanth is genetically different. It is more closely related to modern reptiles and mammals than the fish that it shares the ocean with. It's not too hard to imagine when you take a look at their fins and see that they look similar to a primitive set of limbs. In fact, if you watch a coelacanth swim, it's very reminiscent of watching a quadrupedal animal walking on land. The word coelacanth is Greek and means hollow spine. This is in reference to their spine in fact being hollow. This is a characteristic that they share with many other animals, including humans. The only difference is that most animals' spines fill in as they're developing during the embryonic stage. The coelacanth is the first ovoviviparous animal that I've covered on this show. Ovovivipary is a way to describe an animal that reproduces through the use of eggs that they carry in their body until they hatch, at which point the mother gives birth to live young. The eggs will gestate inside the mother for up to a year before they give birth to their young. Prior to 1938, it was believed that the fish had gone extinct sometime near the end of the Cretaceous period. For thousands of years, humankind had explored the oceans without a single sighting, until that was no longer the case. To fully examine the rediscovery of the coelacanth, I want to first give some background context on the field of cryptozoology. If you listen to my last episode, I talked briefly about the field and cryptozoologists hunt for the Thunderbird. Cryptozoology is the study in search of creatures that have not yet been confirmed to exist. The most notable subjects of this field are hominids, such as the Yeti and Bigfoot, and monsters like the Jersey Devil and the Loch Ness Monster. The popular opinion on this field is that it consists of middle-aged social outcasts on a glorified monster hunt through the woods. This may be a popular notion, but it's just not the truth. Cryptozoology isn't just about finding the squatch in them there woods. It's also about the search for animals that have yet to be discovered and rediscovering species that were once thought to be extinct. The field has had more than a few successes over the years. Cryptozoology can trace its roots all the way back to the 15th century BCE. Queen Pharaoh Hatshepsut had just decided she needed to open up more trade routes to nearby lands separated from Egypt by the Red Sea. She built a fleet to sail out to as of then uncharted parts of Africa to connect with other civilizations. This moment is credited by many as the first oceanographic voyage. These voyages proved fruitful, but in ways that were unexpected to the Queen Pharaoh. When the voyages came back, they brought with them beasts that had never been seen by the Egyptians before. Reports described long-necked dragons, 
or as we may know them, giraffes. Colorful parrots that can mimic human speech and large African unicorns. Scientists later would identify this animal as a rhinoceros. These animals burst open the minds of the Egyptians who laid eyes on them. I can only imagine what it must have felt like to see a world open up so much. All new possibilities laid before them. If such magnificent beasts could exist so close to their home, what else dwells beyond the horizon? Moving forward to the 2nd century BCE, Valmiki spent a large number of years writing the Ramayana, an epic poem and one of the longest found in ancient history. Within this epic, Valmiki details on a group of beings called the Venaras. These beings are humanoids with monkey-like features. This account is the first depiction, fictional or not, of mythical hominids. For those who may not be familiar with the term hominid, they are cryptic animals with distinctly human-like characteristics. These tend to be the most well-known cryptids, such as Bigfoot and the Abominable Snowman. In 79 AD, Pliny the Elder released his book titled The Natural History. This piece details his journey across East Africa and India. Within the pages, he describes many different types of animals he claims to have encountered along the way. Such creatures include giant grasshoppers that Pliny claimed the natives were using the legs of as saws, dog-headed mammals, rhinos, and leopards. This book is one of the first examples of a person thinking beyond the known science in this field to push boundaries. About a century and a half later, Conrad Gesner, a Swiss naturalist, released his five-volume Historia Animalum between 1551 and 1558 AD. This piece was Gesner's magnum opus and encompassed all that was known about animals during that time. This piece was credited as the birth of zoology. Also a fun side fact is that some call Gesner the Swiss Pliny. Things start to get interesting in 1811 when the first reported sightings of Sasquatch occurred. The report was made by David Thompson, a British Canadian fur trader. David was known for his mapping and was described as the greatest land geographer who ever lived. He ventured out into the Pacific Northwest of North America. There he spoke with the Spokanes of modern day Washington, who recounted to him of hairy giants that skulked around the nearby mountains. Finally, in 1955, the term cryptozoology was coined by Bernard Heuvelmans. He presented this term first in his book On the Track of Unknown Animals. This book describes the origins of the discipline, including some of what I have just spoken about now. Cryptozoology isn't all mistaken animals and shadows running through the woods, though. Through the years, there have been a number of animals whose existence has been confirmed by biologists that were once thought to be as far-fetched as the unicorn. Animals like red pandas and lowland gorillas have gone from fiction to reality. Perhaps one of the most noteworthy instances of this revolves around the subject of our show today, the coelacanth. The date was December 23rd in 1938. A museum curator by the name of Marjorie Courtenay Latimer was working at her facility at East London, just northeast of Cape Town in South Africa, when she received a call from Captain Hendrik Goosen. Captain Goosen would often make a habit of giving a call to Marjorie whenever he came back into port. 
his trawler would often explore parts of the Indian Ocean and would bring back specimens that she would find interesting. Courtney Latimer had no idea what was in store for her this day. When she arrived at the dock, she did her routinely scanning over the trawler's catch when something caught her eye. A unique blue fin stood out from among the rays and fish on deck. She retrieved the specimen, accounting later that it was the most beautiful specimen that I had ever seen. Five feet long and a pale mauve blue with iridescent silver markings. This fish was most certainly remarkable. There had been no reported sighting of a fish like this in the flesh in any written record. Marjorie retrieved the fish and brought it back to her museum in the taxi that she had taken to the docks, much at the chagrin of the driver. After combing through the selection of reference books that she had at her immediate disposal, she reached a conclusion that seemed too ridiculous to be believed. The specimen that laid before her bore striking similarities to the prehistoric fish, the coelacanth. She immediately wrote to one Professor J.L.B. Smith, a chemistry teacher at Rhodes University, some 40 miles outside of East London, who had a passion for fish. Marjorie did not hear back until January 3rd of the next year, when Smith sent a cable stating, most important, preserve skeleton and gills equals fish described. It was unfortunate, though, that this would no longer be possible. In an attempt to preserve the specimen, the fish was mounted and its innards were discarded. Any attempt to retrieve the lost pieces of the fish from local dumpsters proved fruitless. All photos taken of the preparation process were also spoiled and unusable. The only way to confirm the identity of the fish would be for a second specimen to be captured. After a local newspaper was allowed to photograph the mounted fish, word soon spread across the world of this potentially phenomenal discovery. The attention did not come without its detractors, however. Many scientists would shrug off the fish as nothing special, just a case of mistaken identity that was blown way out of proportion. Most claimed that the fish was just a large grouper. This didn't add up, though. For one, most groupers are a brownish color, a stark contrast to the blue of the coelacanth. Also, the grouper, like many modern fish, is a ray-finned fish, so their fins are distinctly different from those of the coelacanth. Without an intact specimen, though, this is all meaningless, as the specimen that now hung on the wall was no more convincing than a bite out of a cookie would be to confirm the existence of Santa Claus. It wouldn't be until 14 years later that Smith's obsessive hunt would come to an end. It was due to the efforts of a Captain Eric Hunt, who had taken it upon himself to drum up awareness among local fishermen in the Comoro Islands, even going as far as to post a reward for an intact specimen. At the tail end of 1952, Hunt heard word from two islanders that a specimen matching the description that he had given out was found. The name of the man who reeled in the fish was Amade Abdallah. To the locals, this creature was known by Mame or Gambesa and had turned up on their lines from time to time. Knowing the importance of maintaining the inner structure of the creature, Hunt injected preservatives into the fish and cabled Smith immediately. Smith's journey to reach the fish on the Comoros Islands was a difficult one, going so far as to negotiate with the Prime Minister of South Africa 
when French authoritarians on the island of Madagascar got involved. The French were worried that they could potentially be missing out on a significant scientific discovery and claimed that if Smith didn't make it to Comoros to claim the fish, they would take ownership instead. But Smith got his plane ride and made the short drive from his landing in Comoros to the harbor the fish was located at. When Smith laid his eyes on the dead fish, he wept. It was a coelacanth. At last, Smith's decade-and-a-half-long hunt had reached its conclusion. Debates had been settled. The coelacanth was alive and well. Over the decades since, we have learned a lot about the prehistoric fish, but many aspects of their lives still remain unsolved. While we all accept their existence now, for scientists and researchers like Smith during those 14 years, hunting for signs of animals that haven't been confirmed by science can be very risky. In some cases, it can even cost you your career. There's a taboo that covers those in cryptozoology, not unlike paranormal researchers. It's a stigma that many are trying to shrug off. It should be noted that highly respected scientific organizations like the Smithsonian Institute and National Geographic swore their researchers to secrecy in their own quest to research the coelacanth due to the tainted name of cryptozoology. This is the risk that many in this field take for trying to discover new life that hasn't been confirmed by science yet. The coelacanth stands as a success story, showing off the tenacity of life on this planet and its penchant to survive against the odds. This fish's story serves as the impetus for many similar hunts that take place today. In the southeast United States, murmurs of the ivory-billed woodpecker flying and calling amongst the trees pop up from time to time giving many hope and a reason to venture into the dangerous terrain of the swamp. In Tanzania, several sightings of the legendary thylacine caused debate amongst local biologists of the area. There will always be those out there who will hold on to belief that even just one, hopefully more individuals are out there, beyond the next bend, under the next bush, beneath that next wave over there. We don't want to admit to ourselves that they're gone, vanished from this world forever. It's painful to admit and accept that something so unique and beautiful is gone from this planet and will never return. The coelacanth story doesn't end here. The two surviving species of the order are both endangered, making the order these fish fall into the most scarce order on the planet. Government entities have taken measures to help protect the species, however. Tanzania has created the Tonga Coelacanth Marine Park off of their coast. While being marketed as a tourist destination, it claims to protect 100 kilometers of coastline in an area that has one of the highest incidental catch rates of the large ancient fish. The United States also has the fish listed for protection under the Endangered Species Act. For a way you can help, check out Marine Bio Conservation Society. The mission statement of Marine Bio is to share the wonders of the ocean with the world while supporting the advancement of effective, science-based, and immediate solutions concerning the urgent marine conservation issues that affect us all. Check out their website at marinebio.org for more information on how you can help and a lot of information on the life that lives below the sea, some of which I used to write today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and please be sure to subscribe and follow for future episodes. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating while you're at it. The more positive ratings we get, the easier it will be for others to find the show. Also, like us on Facebook at Mythozoology Podcast. If you have any questions, want to say hi, or have a story about a species you think isn't quite as extinct as most people think, you can email me at mythozoologypodcast at gmail.com.
Stay tuned for when the next episode floats on by. Until then, be well and keep learning.